Amen. Hey, City Church, go ahead and grab a seat and meet me over in John 21. John 21, we're going to wrap up our identity series today by what I think is looking at one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. It's actually the last scene that Jesus ever has in the Bible. Uh, It's going to be a scene of Peter's redemption. So find your way over there. Hey, there's a woman named Monica. Monica was a single mom. Uh, and she was a ferocious prayer for her family. She, she was a devout believer. She prayed night and day for her son. Uh, and, and what you're going to see with Monica's story is she prayed all the time for her son. And honestly, it didn't work out quite the way she thought it would. Well, her son, her son didn't grow up to believe the same thing she did. He, he grew up to be pretty skeptical and even acti- antagonistic towards the gospel um, you would, he developed a reputation of being a womanizer, and you'd find him drunk most days of the week. And, and one day, her son had an invitation to go to Rome to debate because even though he was quite skeptical, he was a brilliant man, and he was going on his way to Rome to go debate and to go get drunk. Uh, on that night that he was supposed to leave, Monica stayed up all night praying for her son not to go only to find out he had already left. So he gets to Rome, and he's by himself, hanging out in a garden, waiting for this moment for him to speak, and he hears the audible voice of God. Like, it kind of freaked him out. He didn't know what to do, but he was there. So he sits in that garden, and he begins to read the scriptures that he has right in front of him. And on that very day in Rome, he surrendered his life to Jesus. Monica's son's name was St. Augustine. Ended up becoming one of the most famous theologians in world history and literally changed the world. There's a lesson here that I think, it's not really the point of where we're going today, but let me just tell you, parents, don't stop praying for your kids. Like, you don't know what God's going to do. Keep going and keep praying. Everyone, everybody loves a great comeback story, don't we? Like, we love, we love the underdog story. I don't know about you, but I'm rooting for the lions today. I want to see this underdog story come to fruition. But what we don't love, we don't love the agony and the suffering that underdog stories normally take. Right? You don't normally get to where you are because everything happened. No, we, we want the redemption, but the redemption tends to go through valleys and mountains along the way. Maybe you're here right now and you're in the middle of one of those and you're like, I just want the story to happen. Maybe, maybe you're the person that's sitting there thinking, God, when is my comeback going to happen? Because let's just be honest, if you, if you really had the, the courage to do it, you'd say, I made a mess in my life. Man, I'm kind of like Augustine. I partied a lot, did all the wrong stuff. And at the end of the day, you've come to the end of yourself and you're waiting for a comeback. If that's you, what I want you to see today is that God's not done with your story, so you shouldn't be. That's going to be the theme today in Peter's story, is God's not done. Many of you, you quit before God does. If I've learned anything at all, one of the things I've learned is that God uses our brokenness to shape our lives into a more beautiful story if we will let him. Think about all the great stories of the Bible. Think about Abraham. 
Abraham was childless in a society that if you didn't have a son, you, you didn't have a heritage. And he's a hundred years old when God comes to him and makes a promise that he will have a son that will sit on the throne that will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's why they call him Father Abraham. And yet, can you imagine the agony of a hundred years of waiting? A hundred years of waiting on this. And then God makes a promise to him, and it takes, it takes several more years before that promise comes to fruition. Think about Joseph. Joseph gets his vision that his brothers, his older brothers, are going to bow down to him. Now, if you're a younger brother, go home and tell your older brothers, hey, you're going to bow at my feet and see how that goes for you. Well, his brothers didn't like it very much, so they sold him off into slavery. Joseph ends up getting sold off into slavery. He ends up getting put in prison because Potiphar's wife makes up a lie and says that he tried to sexually assault her. He spends time in prison. All the while, God is using his story in order to bring a famine into Egypt so that Joseph can save the nation of Israel and save the entire world. And his brothers would come bow at his feet. And do you know what he said? He said, hey, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Think about Moses. Moses, y'all, Moses was left to die, ends up getting picked up by Pharaoh in his court, comes, becomes the prince of Egypt in there. He comes to himself, has an identity crisis, ends up killing a man, running for his life, finds himself alone with God in a burning bush. From there, God sends him back to Egypt where I, it wasn't a love story. When he gets sent back there, it's a battle with the Pharaoh. They go through 10 plagues all the while. Moses takes the people of Israel out of, um, through the Red Sea, out of Egypt. They end up going into a desert where they wandered around for 40 years until God brings them into the promised land. How about David? Do you know David's story? The prophet Samuel comes to Jesse, David's dad, and says, hey, Samuel, all right, Jesse, God is going to anoint one of your sons to be the king. Go get all your sons. Well, Jesse, what does he do? He gets all of the sons besides David because David didn't meet the eye test. He's back out tending the sheep in the field. And one by one, Samuel looks at him and he says, it's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. It's not that one. Until they get to the end and he's like, are there any more? He's like, I do got one more. So he goes and gets David. David looks at him, and he says, that's the one, to everybody's surprise. Well, guess what? He anoints him king, and then he goes back to the sheepfold for seven years. The only reason why he became king is because his brothers are fighting Goliath on the battlefield, and his dad, Jesse, still doesn't have confidence in him. He's like, hey, go bring your brothers a sandwich. They're hungry. He gets over there. His brothers are being cowards, and he's like, what are you doing? Don't you know that we, we have the armies of the living God? Go kill this guy. David, he does it. He becomes king, and everything changes. Do you know what every single one of these stories have in common? Time. 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 Listen, God is more concerned about doing a work in you than he is through you, which is why he calls you to an altar before a platform. See, there's something that God wants to do, and if you will take the time to recognize that God's trying to form you into a certain type of person, then what you'll realize, what you'll realize is everything you go through matters. What you're going to see today is that Peter, Peter's failure was the exact thing that positioned him to be redeemed and used by God. It wasn't that his failures disqualified him. Matter of fact, it's, it's what made him humble enough to receive the grace of God that actually qualified him. For some of you, what you need to know 
is that God wants to redefine your past, and your past doesn't disqualify you if you will allow God to use it. It can actually be your greatest qualifier. Maybe my favorite proverb is proverb, a proverb that says this. Listen, a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up. Do you know what a righteous man does? He falls over and over and over again. Go to the mall today. I know most people don't go to the mall anymore and watch a guy. And if he continues to fall down, you're like, there's something wrong with this guy. No, but here's what God says. The thing that makes you righteous is not that you don't fall. The thing that makes you righteous is just keep getting back up. Keep getting back up and God will use you. See, your, your qualification is your humility to see that you need God. And that's what you're going to see today. Here's John 21. Listen. Here's what it says. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, you, what you should be thinking is John 20 should be the end of the story. John 20, Jesus, he reveals himself to the disciples after the resurrection. And if you remember the scene, you have Thomas, doubting Thomas, standing there being like, listen, bro, if I don't see him with my eyes and put my hands in his wounds, I'm not going to believe. Well, Jesus goes straight through the wall and he's like, here, here I am. Here's my wounds. Touch them, Thomas. At that moment, cue the music, crescendo's done, book over. Like, we all know this. If you don't know how to land the plane properly, the book gets terrible in the end. So you're like, that's it. That's your climax. What are we doing? Why are we continuing to write John 21? Here's why. There's one person who hasn't been dealt with yet. See, Peter, Peter needed to be restored. The last time you saw Peter... Peter was standing around a fire being punked by a middle school girl, doing the exact opposite that he told Jesus he would do. The guy who had the greatest confession of all, if you remember, when Jesus says, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the risen God. And he's like, where else would we go, Jesus? If everybody deserts you, Peter says, I would not. And yet, the last time you see Peter after this confession, he is deserting him. That's the scene. Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples, here they are. They're back at their business in John chapter 21. They're, they're, they're going back to their old life and doing the things that they used to do. It's like, it's like the climax is over. In verse 2, here's what it says. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. By the way, how would you feel if you were the two other disciples? You're like, bro, really? John, like I get one chance to be in the Bible. You get Peter, you name him, you give him a description. You have Thomas, he's a twin. We know that. Nathaniel, we even know where he's from. And then John's like, and then the two other guys. Could you imagine? It'd be like you went on that women's retreat this week with everybody else, and somebody put this epic picture out there on Instagram. And they're like, it was me, Jenna, Rainey, and the two other girls. And you're like, for real? That's what was happening here. Anyway, verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and they got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Fishing is what Peter did before he met Jesus. He's going back. If you, if, if you really read the allegory of what's going on here, Peter, in all of his shame, he's going back to the thing that he was doing before he met Jesus. Here's the warning for you. When you are ashamed, it is easy to go back to the life that you had before Jesus. I, I mean, he, he already felt like a failure, didn't he? He felt like his one chance, he had messed the whole thing up. And this is what Peter's doing. Instead of leaning into his calling that Jesus had called him to do, he goes back. But today, today was a pretty particularly bad day of fishing. 
They spent the entire day fishing and they didn't catch anything. And I'd imagine, honestly, they were pretty exhausted from the roller coaster ride. They've come back from Jerusalem after the Passover. They had watched their Messiah, the person they put all their trust in, die. And then they watch him raise from the dead. And they're going on these emotional highs and lows. And Peter's probably like, I just want to go back to what is normal. I just want to fish again. Peter was carrying the weight of the final moment. And all he could think about is he's a failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at your lowest point where you felt like you cannot measure up and you feel like you're being weighed down and ashamed by something that you did in your past? And honestly, that thing keeps welling up in you because of that decision that you made that you, you start to define who you are by it. If, that's, if you can understand that, you, you get a picture of how Peter felt. See, Jesus was Peter's closest friend. In the most pivotal moment of his life, he failed. Well, verse 4 says this, Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this might be a rabbit trail here, but I, I love this. The Bible says they, they fished all night long, caught nothing. But as the day was breaking... See, here's the picture I think that you're seeing there is that there's this struggle that's going on with Peter and he's failing in himself all night long. And yet, and yet just as the day was breaking, you, you see what it's saying? I, I love the picture. Although you struggle in the night, the Bible says, joy will come in the morning. I think there's a picture here for you. You can struggle and you can toil all night long. You can sit in your failures and yet there is something coming if you will let it happen. Is it, listen, it's those failures that, that rip away at our self-reliance that keep us from Jesus. I think Peter had to come to the end of himself. He had to be emptied. He had to come empty-handed to be filled up with Jesus. Malcolm Muggeridge, he said it like this, failure is the most creative phenomenon in life. Here's what he's saying is if we don't fail, we don't make progress. Some of you think that if you fail, you're a failure, and I think that you're just setting the scene for God to do something great in your life. My, my great life motto is fail forward. Hey, you're going to fail, so just fail forward. So Jesus, he comes to them at daybreak, and listen to what it says. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Don't miss the point. Jesus knew the answer to the question. I mean, the Bible tells you he's on the shoreline. He's watching them fish. Not only that, he's God. So obviously he knew. And he doesn't just say, do you have any fish? He's kind of being a little bit of a jerk about it. The, the, the word here is like, hey, kids, you catch anything? Yo, these are professional fishermen, but they're not just, they're grown men. And they don't know this is Jesus. But honestly, it's a great question. It's an identity question. Do you have any fish? All right, let me say it another way. Imagine, imagine you're a real estate agent. And it's been a particularly bad year in the real estate market. You know, interest rates are kind of high right now. And, and we all know you didn't sell anything. And I'm like, hey, bro. Catching? Are you selling any houses this year? Like, you and I both know I didn't sell any houses. Let's get a little more intimate. Woman at the well. Jesus says, you have a husband? She says, no. He's like, you're right. You had five, and the one you're with right now isn't your husband. Kind of a piercing question. It's an identity question. This is what Jesus is doing right here. Do you have any fish? You know, I think the picture here is this. Change is always on the other side of honesty and vulnerability. 
There's another thing here. You're going to see here that John 21 looks identical to the first time that Jesus called the disciples. He actually says the same exact language. I made you fishers of men. Here's the warning. They went out fishing on their own all night. If you try to live this life on your own, you can toil all night long and it's not going to work. The, the Christian life is not a solo, do-it-on-your-own kind of sport. It's a team sport. And Jesus is trying to show them the power to do this actually rests in me. Verse 6, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. It's like a five-foot-long boat. You're like, bro, what are you talking about? I just spent eight hours fishing. Nothing's over here. And you want me to just throw it on the other side as if that's going to work? And you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, I love that. John, the writer of the Gospel of John, always calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm sure that irritated the mess out of Peter. Said to him, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter had heard that it was the Lord, he put off his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and then he threw himself into the sea. What a Peter move, right? The guys are like, bro, we're in the boat. We can get there just as fast. What are you doing jumping into the sea? The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for, there were, for they were not that far from the land, only about 100 yards off. Now imagine this for a second. These professional fishermen. They've been doing this their entire life. They spend the entire night fishing. They're exhausted. And as far as they know, there's some random dude on the shore is like, hey, would you throw it out for just one more catch? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm actually quite surprised that the disciples said yes. I'd have been like, bro, what are you talking about? Like, stay in your lane. We know what we're doing. There's no fish out here. Well, they didn't. They threw it in, and they caught so many fish that the boat couldn't even haul it in. Like they recognized in that moment that this was Jesus. Peter was so overwhelmed that he threw himself into the water and he swam to the shore. There's a couple of things, a couple of things that I think are worth noting. First is this. Jesus' call to cast the net one more time is the same call for you. Y'all, when you get to the end of your rope and you just want to give up, I think there's something to just one more time. Like, just one more time. You don't know what's on the other end of that just one more time. Whenever it just seems like everything is about to end in your life or you just seem like, I can't do this anymore, it's just, just throw the net out one more time. Do you know how many people, do you know how many people have succeeded because they just went one more time? They failed over and over and over again. But on that last time, listen to this. At the age of 17, she was rejected from college. At 25, her mother died from disease. At 26, she suffered from a miscarriage. At 27, she got married, but her husband abused her. And despite this, they had a daughter that year. At 28, she got divorced and was diagnosed with severe depression. At 29, she was a single mother living on welfare. At 30, she did what she only knew to do, only thing she was ever good at doing. She started to direct her passions into writing. At 31, she finally published her first book. At, 34, at 35, she released four books and was named Author of the Year. At 42, she sold 11 million copies of her book on the first day of release. Her name is J.K. Rowling. And today, Harry Potter is worth more than $15 billion. Just throw your nets out one more time. Just keep throwing them out. 
What's amazing about John 21, again, it's the exact same language that Jesus used when he called the disciples for the first time. If you remember, he told them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is trying to show the disciples and you, the disciple or the call has not changed. Like when you're in the darkness of night, just, just one more time. Don't stop following. Just keep going. Keep doing. When you don't think you can do it anymore, just keep going. The call is the same. And the simple obedience that the disciples had to throw out the net one more time, it was what changed their perspective. Again, these guys didn't have to do that. It would have been easier for the disciples just to tell Jesus, hey, look, we've tried it. It didn't work. But the simple obedience to open up their eyes and to see that God had called them to something. Listen to this. What if, what if your divine experience was just on the other side of simple obedience? Like, what if you are at that next one? And it's just like, just one more time. Have you ever thought about that? What if your friend's faith story was on the other side of you being willing to just be obedient enough to share the gospel with them? Like you, what if, what if your relational healing was on the other side of you just being obedient enough to say, I'm sorry? What if the divine conversation was on the other side of you being all in with God? Here's the one thing I know is that the Christian life is not passive. Jesus meets us where we are, yet he reveals himself through our obedience. Like, did you notice? Did you notice that Jesus didn't initially reveal himself to him? He actually reveals himself after he asks them a question and gives them a command. Here's the question. The question is, who are you? Here's the command, follow me. It's the same two questions he asks every single one of us. Who are you? And then follow me. Until you are willing to do that, I'm going to tell you that he probably isn't going to reveal himself to you. It's a vulnerability and it's a submission. Listen, you don't need to find Jesus. His brother ain't lost. He needs to find you. What you need to do is obey his word, and that's where life change happens. Verse 9. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. You know what I love about this scene? So Peter, he's running, he's grabbing, he's hauling the fish. But the table was already set. You notice that? There's already fish on the fire. Following Jesus is always an invitation to the table. And we know the dinner table is the most intimate setting for relationship. Listen. Jesus did not need Peter's fish. He doesn't need yours either. I think some of you are still sitting in this world where you think, I got to call it all in. I got to bring it there. I got to bring everything I have. What I need you to recognize is that the only thing that Peter really needed to bring was himself. I love this principle. Jesus doesn't need your help, but he loves your involvement. He didn't rebuke him. He invited him in. Every detail Every detail about John chapter 21 is about Peter's effort, but Jesus' grace. 
He's the one that jumps out of the boat. He's the one that drags the fish, only to find out that the meal was already prepared. Listen, the, the religion will tell you, you need to bring your best to Jesus. The gospel says the table was already set. Like some of you just need to give up and get over this. By the way, I love this. Side note, Jesus is in his resurrected body. He's eating fish. You know what that tells me is when I get to heaven, there's going to be tomahawk steaks just waiting, right? Did you know the Hebrew word for peace is shalom and the Greek word is cow? You know that? You know what the Greek word for evil is? Cat. Notice the specificity of how many fish. 153 of them. And the net was not torn. There's actually two reasons for this detail. Here's number one. Details are unnecessary in storytelling. It just seems like an arbitrary detail, right? It doesn't seem like it's really that pertinent to the story unless, unless you're journaling something, unless it's true. Now, most scholars believe that they were probably marking the fish because they had to bring it to the market to sell, so they would have counted the fish. Like, it makes sense. But here's the second reason that I think this is important. 153 is a picture of what Jesus is going to do through their simple obedience. Jerome, the, the, the first century historian, actually said, and I don't know if this is true or not, he said that at the time of this writing, 153 was actually the amount of species of fish that there were in the world. Now, why does that matter? Because Jesus' calling is not about fish. It's about being a fisher of men. It's about people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what he's telling the disciples here is that, hey, I'm going to do what I told you I'm going to do if you'll simply do whatever I told you to do. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I love this picture. What he's telling you is that he will not lose any of them, and he will bring them. How do you know that? The net was not torn. See it? Hey, he's going to bring it in, and he's not going to lose any. He'd actually tell you this way in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. I love that. And they know me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, because I and the Father am one. You need to know this. What Jesus promised to do, he's going to do. And if he's called you and you know his voice, he's not going to lose you. See, your salvation is not based on what you do. It's based on what he did, which means that he's the only one that can take it from you, and he promised that he never will. That's the picture. So check this out. After their obedience... The Savior invites them to the table for fellowship. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples after he had raised from the dead. Oh, don't miss this. The most intimate thing that Jesus could do was invite them into relationship. And Jesus is trying to tell you something that you need to know. The intimacy of your relationship with Jesus is not determined on the ferociousness of your faith or your obedience. It's determined on him. You know, there's always room at the table, even in your doubts and even in your shames. If you recognize this, Peter has not been restored yet, and the relationship has already been established. Again, Seven times a righteous man falls. Seven times he gets back up. Now watch this, verse 15. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Y'all, that's an odd question. That is an odd question, but Jesus knew that something needed to be dealt with. This, this arrogant Peter that's sitting there looking at Jesus saying, I don't care what anybody says to you. I'm never leaving you. Is now the ashamed Peter who's embarrassed because he denied Jesus. But Jesus, he brings him back to the table to ask him, do you love me? Maybe that's you. Maybe you went back. Like Peter, you've gone back fishing. You've went back to your old life. And honestly, you feel so ashamed that you don't think that Jesus could ever receive you again. And he's asking you the same question. Do you love me more than these? What are these? I don't know. For you, what are they? What you need to know, what you need to know is the table has never been closed. The question is, will you come? See, the, the conversation happened after the invitation. It's like Jesus when he caught the woman in adultery. It, when you look at the order of what Jesus does after the woman is caught in adultery, he doesn't say, go and sin no more, and I'll forgive you. He says, no, I forgive you. And that's what creates the power to go and sin no more. So, so Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Simon Peter says, sure, you know I love you. Then Peter, he says it a second time. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? He says, yes. Yes, I love you. And then third time. And at this point, Peter's pretty green. <laughs> but what you have to understand is this. And this is so important. Jesus is not patronizing Peter, and he's not shaming Peter. He's actually doing something quite beautiful. Charles Spurgeon famously said that your repentance should be as public as your sin. The last scene that you get of Peter is his greatest failure. Three times he denies Jesus publicly. So what does Jesus do? He gives him three opportunities to be fully and completely restored. It's actually the most loving thing ever. See, you might read that as him shaming him, but he's not. Now, there's something going on in Greek here that you just can't see in English, but it's, it's wild and really important. The first time Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you love me? He actually uses the word agape. It's this deep sense of fatherly, intimate love. And Peter responds back using the word philios, which is a, a friendship love. So he looks at him and says, Simon Peter, do you love me? He says, yeah, you know we're good. Second time, he says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Agape. Peter says, yeah, Aphelios, you know we're good. Third time, though, Jesus actually changes the word to Aphelios. And Simon Peter is grieved. What's going on here? Watch this. It's the first time in Peter's life that he's actually honest with himself. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, Jesus, I want to love you. But man, I don't think I can. You see the honesty and the humility in that statement? I don't, I don't think I'm deserving of that love. But Jesus doesn't shame him. Three times he says, feed my sheep. Lead my people. Keep going. It's, a, it's an identity and a reaffirmation of the calling. Hey, Peter, you don't think you're good enough, but let me just tell you, bro, you are. Like, do you love me? 
do you love me? And Peter's like, I don't know if I do. Honestly, as I look back at my life, I don't know if I love you enough. It's honestly, it's one of the greatest acts of, of humility in his expression. But Jesus affirms and commissions. Here's what you need to know is Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He called Peter. He's not waiting for Peter to be good enough. Y'all, why are we so quick to disqualify people when they mess up? I, Tim Keller used to say that you would never be able to live by the standards that you hold other people to. And yet you want people to hold you to the standard that you want to be held to. Peter, if Peter was trying to become a pastor in most churches in America right now, you would tell him he was disqualified. And Jesus is like, I called you. I've called you. I've called you. Three times. Three times he denies him. Three times Jesus fully restores him. Every single, thing, every single theme in this scene is set up to bring Peter back to this space to redeem him. Think about it. Where did Peter deny Jesus? Around a fire. Where is Peter restored? Around a fire. See, what you're doing is Jesus is bringing him back to the moment of his greatest betrayal to show him, listen, Peter, this doesn't define you. And I think for some of you, your redemption has to start with you going back. You got to go back and you got to deal with some stuff because you have to understand that your greatest failure does not define you. And even though you're letting it, like Peter, Peter's sitting there saying, Jesus, I don't know if I love you. He's letting his failure define him. Jesus is trying to tell you that's not what defines you. The gospel is not about what you do, but about what he did. So he had to go back. And when he goes back there, after he denied him three times, like he said he wouldn't, notice what he says. Do you love me more than these? You know who these are? The disciples. Remember last time? Even if the disciples, even the disciples do what they do, I won't. Every single thing is about bringing him back to redeem him and to restore his calling. Let me tell you why Jesus does this. It's not to embarrass him. It's to strengthen him. It's to redeem him. Peter brings nothing to the table besides himself. Write this down. There's nothing you could ever do, or take a picture of it, that can make Jesus love you any more. There's nothing you've ever done to make Jesus love you any less. Because it's not dependent upon what you do, but on what he did. I think some of you are still battling a functional religion. And you need to hear the words. I called you. And when I called you, it wasn't based on what you did, but on what I did. And I affirm you, and I bring you in, not because of what you do. You know what the greatest enemy of some of you guys are? Self-reliance. You're your greatest enemy. You know, one of the most powerful stories of the Bible, one that I love the most, Paul, Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, is telling you all of his qualifications. He's like the man, Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He went to like Harvard of the South, Georgia Southern, or something like that. And he had all this amazing education. And what he tells you is that God put a thorn in his flesh, and he battled with God. He says he prayed three times. And I don't think he's telling you he only prayed three times. I'm thinking he's telling you three seasons of agonizing prayer that God would take it away. You know what Jesus tells him? My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power 
is made perfect in your weakness. Paul would say, therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what he's saying? He's telling Paul, listen, Paul, your greatest gift is this thorn because it keeps bringing you back to me. Here's what I think. I think that, I think Jesus wants to fill empty cups. And some of you are still too full of yourselves to be filled with him. And maybe the greatest gift he can give you is to pour a little bit of you out of your self-reliance and of your shame and of your guilt so that he can fill you with his grace and his mercy and his love and his compassion. Telling you, some of you are your own worst enemies. But he's already called you and he wants to free you. Listen to how John 21 ends. Jesus tells him in John 21, 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to go, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and he will carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. Now, if you're Peter, you're sitting there like, what? How is this good news? Like, you just reaffirmed my calling, told me to feed your sheep, and now you're telling me I'm going to die by crucifixion. Historians will actually tell you that's exactly what happened to Peter. Peter was crucified upside down because he said he wasn't worthy enough to die like Jesus. But this is the most loving statement Jesus could ever make to Peter. Think about it. What was Peter's greatest regret? denying Jesus. What did Jesus just tell Peter is going to happen? Peter, you're going to get another shot at this thing. And next time, you're going to get it right. How many of you want to know that? Hey, when it counts, Jesus is saying, you're not going to mess up. Man, I think Peter beat the rest of his chest for the rest of his life knowing that the greatest reversal of his life was going to happen. I don't know if you've seen this or not yet, but Jesus was forming Peter through his experience so that he could use Peter for the rest of his life. Some of you need to stop thinking that God is angry with you because you're walking through tragedy. Look, it's tough. But I'm telling you, he loves you and he's proven his love for you by the cross and his power over your life by the resurrection. You know, we say around here, we're created for community and we're discipled in relationships and all of that is true. God uses one another and he uses the stories of the Bible to shape you into the type of person that you are. There's two things about Peter's story that he needed to know or else he was gonna be spiritually dead. And I think these same two things you need to know too. Here's number one. Peter needed to know that his relationship with Jesus was secure. See, he found himself continually falling back into functional religion, talking about the, the conditions of his obedience is what made him a follower of Jesus. And Jesus never says that. Jesus tells him, you can't earn my love. You already have it. Follow me. He doesn't say try harder. He says, it is finished. Jesus had to bring Peter back to that same place. And I'm telling you guys, I think he's doing it with some of you. 
and asking you the same question. See, Jesus accepts you on the basis of his death and resurrection, not on your good works. Jesus died and rose again, and listen, all he tells you is, follow me, follow me. Number two, Peter needed to know that he wasn't too weak for Jesus. You know he wasn't? Peter wasn't too weak for Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think he was too strong for Jesus. See, he needed, he needed to, to stop believing the functional religion. He needed to get to the end of himself. He needed to come to the table to realize that he couldn't bring anything to the table. Which is why I love that Peter, Jesus tells him, hey, bring your fish. And as he brings all of his stuff, and as he brings all of his accomplishments to the table, what he finds is it's already ready for him. I think some, again, God's trying to do the same thing in you, and it's a humbling thing. Hey, bring all your rewards. Bring all your achievements. Bring all your good works. Because when you bring them here, here's what I'm going to show you. I didn't need them. I'm not waiting on you to do your thing for me to love you. I'm telling you, it's not your weakness keeping you from Jesus. It's your strength. It's your inability to let go and to be vulnerable and to give up yourself and to say, Jesus, I need to experience your fullness. The thing that made Peter a great leader was not his accomplishments. It was his failures because he's a righteous man. And a righteous man gets back up and he gets back up and he gets back up. Judas never got back up. Peter did. Here's what I think. I think, I think that you need to give yourself the space to fail so that you can see your redemption story unfold. I think you need to give other people the space to fail so that they can be redeemed. And I think, I think that Jesus is positioning some of you right now to fail so you can empty yourself of yourself and find fulfillment in him. As we wrap up this identity series that we've had for the last four weeks, here's my question. Who do you say he is? That's the question that Peter was left with. Who do you say he is? There's one final scene. It's really fascinating. Verse 20, Peter, after this, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following him the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper, which means he was in the most intimate place. And he said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Now listen to this, verse 21. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. Peter's like, all right, I get it. I get it. But what about him? I think Jesus... He's like, Peter, stop comparing your story to everybody else's and just follow me. I think it's a good word. I think some of you need to stop comparing your story to other people and just follow him. I think that's what he's trying to tell you. I wrote your story. It's not an accident. You're not an accident. Everybody thinks that everybody else's life's easier. Let me tell you the truth. You don't know what everybody else is going through. Everybody in here is carrying a tragedy that you know nothing about. But that's none of your business anyway. The intimacy of the table that he's invited you to is where you will find your joy and identity.